Morning Twitter. I'm Stephanie McNeil. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. And if we were a dinner party, we would be Trump's fast food spread. Yes, and what has sparked some of the most hilarious memes in recent Twitter history, Trump created, uh, treated the national champion Clemson football team to McDonald's, Wendy's, and Domino's. I mean, now that he sprung for the dominoes. <laughs> well, as the poll reporter Yahoo's Hunter Walker tweeted, here's a video I shot of President Trump showing off his 300 hamburgers. Let's take a look. Now, what's your favorite thing here, Mr. President? I like it all. I like it all. It's all good stuff. Great, great American food. Great American food. Great American. I also like when 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 it happened last night. It was three hundred burgers, mm -hmm. and then I I saw that number get bumped up to a thousand. And I believe uh, this morning Trump was tweeting about over a thousand, and I think he called them ham burgers. But what'd you think of it? What'd you what'd you make of the situation? I mean, it was like the most fucking hilarious thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I was dying. You were living for this I've last night. Been, and my, I been. We talked about this last Monday or last Tuesday, but my my younger brother actually went to Clemson and mm -hmm. has been riding high on this victory. And so we've just been sending each other memes back and forth this whole time. We love it. So you were just loving it, really enjoying it. Here's the thing, man. Like, one, I get it. We're going to talk about it when we go live from the district. There are some more serious implications about the shutdown and why this was happening. That said... No, we don't need to... No, this is our fun time. I'm, I'm not a man that's going to sit here and pretend like I'm above putting a McDonald's burger on a fancy tray and calling it a celebration meal. Like, I can't pretend like that's not the type of person I am. Uh, you know, I've done the... Like, the candelabras, like, I really enjoy... Like, I felt like... Weird flex, but okay. Just lighting candles and then serving fast food. I kind of enjoyed it. Isaac, I believe in you, and I think you're the type of person who would at least spring for Shake Shack. Okay, you're okay, now, you know, we're, getting, now be, we're getting into the you know, quality of it. You know, own yourself, like you are, you're better than that. Okay, so you, you would put Shake Shack <laughs> on the platter. So you didn't mind the fast food, you just minded the choice. Oh no, I minded all of it. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, but here's one of my favorite tweets. And there's a couple of different iterations of this, but here's a good one. Imagine owning AirPods and being served a presidential dinner for peasants. And I just, man, <laughs> he looks so, he's like, he knows he's better than this. He knows he's better than this. W. Kamau Bell wondered what the staff thought, tweeting, White House staffer choking through tears. I guess we could use the Lincoln <laughs> gravy boats. For the McNugget sauces? Oh. And for me, the fact that they didn't even take them out of the packages. I know. Like, they couldn't like, at least. Please take the, like, dollar store ranch and pour it into the gravy boat. It's like, you imagine, like, <laughs> President Lincoln, like, you know, making a Thanksgiving dinner for himself, you know, and now this is this is where our country, this is where our country is gone. They could have unwrapped it. They could have unwrapped the food. Can you and imagine all the White House staffers pouring the little <laughs> square? <laughs> okay, okay though, okay, like you were saying, we do get it. We have all been in a situation where you have people over, you have big plans, you're gonna make this whole spread, and the last minute you go to the grocery store and pretend that you baked everything. But as Chandler tweeted, it's like he forgot he had guests on the way and sent an intern to the closest fast food joint to the White House. Like, at least plate the burgers like they're homemade Donald Dam. Exactly. And like, you know, we have all been there. We've all course. been ready to have somebody and then just caused a monumental historic government shutdown and then not been able to serve the food that maybe these players should have deserved. But Twitter, we want to take it to the timeline. Let's said you did that. 
What would you serve? What fast food would you serve at your dinner party? Let us know using the hashtag am to DM. Do you have, do you have like one you would definitely serve? I mean, I am not above not cooking my own dinner parties, but I would definitely go to like Whole Foods or something bougie. <laughs> okay. Just to be like, okay, yeah, I didn't make any of this, but like, I don't know, it's from Trader Joe's. You coming to my house, you're getting Popeyes. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, Popeyes is better. Mm -hmm. Popeyes, anything, anything is better than McDonald's. Okay, I wish I, we could talk about this all day long, but unfortunately we need to move on to real news. So here's another tweet about fast food and drama. Krispy Kreme donuts being delivered to Downing Street under an armed guard. And this is somehow linked to Brexit. Right. All that's happening with Brexit, which we as journalists really understand, and we'll explain it all to you right now. Okay, yeah, actually we have absolutely no idea what's going on with Brexit. Despite the many times it's been explained, there's now some new things happening. Thank God we have Alex Spence, BuzzFeed News reporter from the UK to help. Alex, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you going? We are doing all right. And we know today is a huge day for Brexit. But other than getting Krispy Kremes, can you explain exactly what is going down? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right. It's a, an absolutely massive day. So uh, the UK um, is withdrawing from the European Union. As you know, the, um, the government pressed the clock on the process for that and, and had two years to, um, to negotiate the, the terms of, of the exit. So Theresa May uh, with the European Union has uh, come up with an agreement which resolves some of the issues that had to be resolved as, as we leave. Um, but that has to be approved by, um, by MPs in the House of Commons first, and tonight they're going to vote on it. So what are we thinking about this vote? Do we think that it's going to pass or it's not? There is almost nobody in Westminster that thinks that it's going to pass. Even uh, people at the top of government are assuming that uh, the government is going to lose this vote, uh, which is, is, is extraordinary. Um, the, the question really is how much do they lose by? And, uh, you know, nobody really knows what happens next. Okay, so nobody really knows what happens next, but you do say that it's extraordinary that it's not going to pass. What makes it extraordinary? Well, I mean, just the, um, it, there's almost no precedent for the government losing um, a, a vote like this on its main policy. And the consequences of, uh, of losing are, are just so profound and, and what happens next is so uncertain. I mean, we've, we've all known that this were, was coming, that we we're coming to this moment. We've known for a long time that uh, the government looked like losing it and Honestly, nobody, uh, even in uh, Downing Street, really knows what happens next. We've, we've all spent uh, weeks and, and even months gaming out what might happen, um, and, and we're going to find out. But, um, but none of us really know, which, um, which just makes it a moment of, of, of really um, profound uh, consequence and, and just extraordinary political drama. So you're saying that even though most people, journalists, politicians, think that this is not going to pass, we also don't know what's going to happen when it doesn't pass. Do we have any idea? Are there options? No, I mean, there are, so there's a bunch of different things that might happen. So theoretically, the government could put the vote, uh, put, put, the, um, put the deal back for a vote as many times uh, as it likes, in, in, in theory. 
Um, so, you, you know, there is a school of thought that uh, that they might lose the vote tonight and then put it back, um, put the deal back uh, for a vote again, perhaps after going back to uh, to Brussels and and trying to get some more concessions out of the European Union, although they they seem um, reluctant to to budge. Uh, and and then there's the opposition party um, possibly uh, will will use the the defeat to then try and um, get a, a motion of no confidence to the government to bring the government down and force a, a new election. And then there are other factions uh, within both parties that are manoeuvring for, um, for, for uh, different outcomes uh, on both sides. So there's any number of ways that, that it could go and um, we're all just kind of uh, waiting for the vote and, and then we're going to be in this, um, in, in this extraordinary period. In this extraordinary period. i got to ask, how does the general public feel about this? Are they just throwing their hands up? Uh, are they happy? Are they upset? Um, I, I, the country um, the country is very, very divided on this. Um, it's, it's, it's divided on leaving the European uh, Union. Uh, generally, we saw that uh, with the vote in 2016, and, and it, it remains the case. I think uh, if you went outside of London, if you went outside of Westminster and you went and, and spoke to people in the street around the country, uh, there's probably a, a, a fair amount of exasperation that um, that this is going on and that, uh, that there's so little uh, clarity on, on what is going to happen next. I think, um, I think yeah, there, there are probably a lot of people that are just throwing their hands up and saying, oh, why can't you guys get this sorted out? But it is a, it's a really, really messy, uh, messy situation. And um, it's not an easy thing to do to, um, to disentangle yourself from a block that you've been part of for 40 years that covers just about every part of um, the economy and, and, um, and our laws and regulations. Um, so it was always going to be difficult. And um, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether it had to be this difficult or, or what, but um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's probably a lot of people that, um, that, that are exasperated that we are uh, in this mess. Exasperated. Well, we can all relate on that across the pond over here as well. Alex, that was very informative. I feel like I know a little bit more about Brexit. Thank you so much for coming on and explaining that. Oh, you're most welcome. <laughs> Thanks so much. A tweet from BuzzFeed News political reporter Ruby Kramer. Scoop, Bernie Sanders will meet with women who said they experienced sexual harassment and gender discrimination while working on his 2016 campaign. Ruby joins us now. Hi, Ruby. Hi, guys. How are you? Good, good. So this good. is a little different than Bernie's initial response to these allegations, right? Yes. Um, he, I mean, in, in Senator Sanders' defense, he got on CNN the, the, shortly after these reports first surfaced. Um, Politico and the New York Times wrote about women who said that they experienced basically a male-dominated campaign where they felt demeaned and there was gender discrimination and possible pay equity issues. Um, and he got on CNN that day and apologized, but also said, listen, I, I didn't know anything about this. I was a little busy. I was around around traveling the country, making the case for the issues that I care about. And obviously that's not really an appropriate response to women who gave up their lives for a year and a half to work on a campaign that they believed in. Yeah, so do, one, do we know any reason why he gave this kind of change in response? And two, what is it going to look like? Is he going to be sitting down with the women personally? Yeah, so with regard to the meeting, it's on Wednesday in Washington, D.C. Um, 
a number of women and men who worked for him are going to be coming. The senator is paying for them to come. He's paying for their flights. He's paying for their hotels. They're all traveling to DC to do this meeting. And it's going to be facilitated by two like official facilitators from a group that deals with workplace discrimination and inclusion issues. So that's the sort of setup of the meeting as far as we know. Um, And as far as the senator's response, I mean, I think that that was sort of an emotional response that he first gave. I obviously think he, he then did a sort of, he talked to reporters in DC the following day, I believe, and gave a little bit more of a thoughtful response where he said, this is, you know, unacceptable. And any woman, to any woman who worked for me, who experienced an unpleasant experience of any kind, I deeply apologize. And so I, I think that this is, a, you know, the Me Too pro- process, the Me Too movement has been a learning process, I think, for a lot of men. And I don't think the senator is exempt from that. So I think that this meeting will be, you know, it's never too late to listen to victims. And I think it's it's undoubtedly a good thing that this meeting is taking place and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we will see how it goes. Do you think that there's any chance that people will be held accountable, these alleged harassers? Well, one of the one of the stories uh, reported by Alex Thompson Politico dealt with a fairly senior member of Sanders's orbit named Robert Becker, who um, allegedly tried to kiss a woman at a staff kind of get together over drinks shortly after the when the campaign was winding down, and it's been pretty clear that he's been sort of pushed out of, at least for now. I mean, he's, we've been assured that he's not in the Sanders world at the moment. He won't be working for the campaign if, if Bernie decides to run. Um, there are a number of other people who were named in the article. One is in Rich Peltier. He was, is also a very long time member of the Sanders world. He's worked for Sanders forever. Um, he was actually working on a draft movement to draft, like draft Bernie 2020 to get him in the race. And he's now apparently no longer involved in that draft effort. So accountability is such a tricky thing on campaigns because these things are like, does someone ever like, will Bernie personally stop speaking to these people? I don't know. Um, And they're sort of like fluid worlds where people move in and out. But um, what I think they do want to make sure of is that if he does run they establish what has what aides have described as what they hope will be a gold standard policy for how to report sexual harassment on campaigns, a human resources department that functions well, a better infrastructure to support women, um, more women in leadership. They want to try to use. There are people inside his orbit and women inside his orbit who work for him who want to try to get something positive from all of this. Okay, Ruby, before we let go, uh, listen, this is extremely your beat. So I just want to ask, how (laughs) likely do you think it is that Sanders is going to run in 2020? Uh, I don't know. If you had asked me that a month ago, I would have said like 100% he's running. When I was, he did a ton of campaigning in 2018 for Democrats around the country. And he did this like really frenetic, crazy, fast paced midterm tour across nine states that left me utterly exhausted. And he was totally fine. I was like, this guy is totally ready to go. And now, I, I only say I'm not sure because I feel like we would have seen a clear, clear signal by now about whether he were really going to run. I think he's genuinely, everyone around him that I've spoken to has said he's genuinely undecided. He can't, you know, he's not totally sure. I think that there's part of him that thinks that, you know, can you catch lightning in a bottle twice? And um, is it time for a sort of new generation to 
step up and and take on the issues that that he believes in. I mean, he is 77 years old. So um, I think that that's a big issue. I just, I think he's genuinely torn. So I'm not sure. We'll see. We will see. Yeah, All we right. will see. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ruby. Thank you. We have got such a great show for you today. Get this, Isaac is gonna be sitting down with Molly freaking Ringwald. That is crazy. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. All right, welcome back. I'm seeing a lot of talk about fast food on the timeline. Uh, thank you, guys. Boston Market, one that I hadn't thought of in a while. Uh, just just a shout out there. They had that rotisserie chicken that I always found so yeah, delicious. Yeah, I think my mom back in the day for some like meals would like get like a ham or something from Boston Market. Absolutely. Yeah. Basically, what I'm trying to say is y'all are making me hungry. But yeah. let's get into these fire tweets. Isn't it obvious? Tweeted that one time my dad tried to get fancy with the edit, and people thought I died. Look at that photo, just. It's so funny. It's also just such a dad thing, right? Like to really try and show your love for your daughter and you end up making She's what like looks a like a poster at a wake. Well, it, it's beautiful. You should hang it up in your house. <laughs> All right, non-essential government tweeted. The year is 2035. Marie Kondo holds up the contemn condemned man to the crowd. Does this man spark joy? The crowd jeers. No, he does not. She nods silently and throws him into the pit. <laughs> have you watched? Have you watched it? Yes, I'm obsessed. You love it? Yes, I love it. It's so soothing. I think, I don't know. I think if you are like into like, if you have like an organizing brain, just watching people's like messes turn into organization is really, really calming for me. It like makes me feel at peace. I gotta say, I haven't watched the show, I haven't read the book, but I do find myself just walking around being like, sparks joy. Does not spark joy, sparks joy. That's how I'm like filtering the entire world right now. Love it, love it, <laughs> love it. Kibble Smith, you tweeted, hear me out. If Batman is canonically about 32, then he was born in 1986. And if his parents were killed leaving a movie theater when he was 10 years old, then there's a very real possibility that they were seeing Space Jam. That is, no, that's, it's too soon. You can't make fun of Batman's dead parents. That's too soon. Too they were soon. seeing something classy. They weren't seeing Space Jam. I mean, Clay's fan is classy. <laughs> What's Fair wrong enough. with you? Fair enough. <sighs> Andy, me, hello, yes. One salad, please. Salad person, of course, your total is 1782. Me, yes, and that seems perfect and normal. May I have a drink? Salad person, yes, and your total is now 2388. Me, yes and thank you very much. This is reasonable and great. Oh. I was trying to do a little acting. That was like me doing some like, the you know, acting, acting was workshop. Great. The prices of salads in the world is terrible. I mean. It's just a bowl of lettuce. In 10 years, we're literally dropping $50 a day on sweet green. Oh, don't say that. All right, you ready for Tweet of the Day? Yes. All right. Tweet of the Day comes from a live girl. Guess you could say Hulu dropping its Fire Festival documentary just before Netflix is slated to drop its own is just two streaming services fighting fire with fire. <laughs> Have you had a chance to watch the Hulu one yet? Oh my God, I'm so excited. I had to obviously watch two hours of The Bachelor last night. Oh, I'm Shout sorry. Shout out to anyone who unfollowed me tweeting The Bachelor. <laughs> I saw ya. 
but I definitely am going to watch both documentaries. I'm absolutely going to watch both. I won't lie. I am. I have loved the Fire Festival. It was one of my favorite stories. I am. I'm obsessed with it. So I'm going to make time for both. But I'm intrigued to see who pulls it off better. I think that it was one of my favorite days at work ever. <laughs> it was so great. Well, coming up, Isaac is now with Molly Ringwald. So excited! But up next, we are going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Okay. Good morning. Okay, Emma, we've been having a lot of fun with Trump's fast food dinner, but the sad reality of this is that it is government shutdown related, right? Yeah, so apparently it has something to do with the lack of White House staff there to prepare the meal. But honestly, I think, you know, the president was also just kind of pulling a legendary move here. All right. Well, listen, we're, we're experiencing a little bit of a delay with you, Emma, but we're going to get through this. Here's a tweet from NBC's Frank Thorpe. In letter from William Barr to Lindsey Graham ahead of his confirmation hearing, Barr says he feels strongly that the special counsel must be permitted to finish his work. Also says the president can commit obstruction of justice. Emma, what else should we expect as William Barr heads into his attorney general confirmation hearing today? Right, so I think we're going to hear a lot more questions about special counsel Robert Mueller and his investigation. Already the hearing is underway and there have been several questions to this effect. Um, and he's, you know, talked about his relationship with Mueller. He's known him for decades. And so I think we are going to hear more questions about Mueller, especially from Democrats. And Barr himself has said that he believes special counsel Mueller should be able to continue his investigation and that he doesn't want partisan politics to interfere in anything that he does at the Department of Justice as Attorney General. Do we have a sense on how this confirmation hearing is going to go? Is it going to be smooth sailing or are there going to be some bumps along the way? I mean, there can always be bumps on the way, uh, as we know with previous confirmations, but this is a confirmation that doesn't need a supermajority in the Senate. They only need 51 votes. And after the last election, Republicans have more than enough votes to, to pass his confirmation pretty easily. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News' Lysandra Villa. My home district now has a racist congressman who can vote and participate in conference meetings, but ah, has no committee assignments. And here's a tweet from Business Insider's Joe Perdicone. McCarthy has done more to deal with Steve King in the first two weeks of the 116th Congress than Paul Ryan had done in years of repeated racist remarks. So Emma, why is the GOP taking what in my mind feels like the smallest of steps to penalize Steve King for his very long history of racist statements now? You know, that's a great question, and I think a question that many of us on the Hill have been asking for a long time is why hasn't there been any sort of consequence for these types of comments? Um, but I think there's a pretty simple explanation. One, you've got a new leader for Republicans in the House. That's Kevin McCarthy. Paul Ryan's no longer there. But I think there's a better explanation, and that's that the election is over. Steve King won his seat, and so now they can take action a little bit more safely, most likely, and not worry about him losing the seat and Republicans losing that seat in Iowa to Democrats. Wow. Well, what committees was King on anyway? Was he, did he have these huge committee assignments where he could do real uh, consequences? 
I mean, yeah, he was on the Judiciary Committee, which of course is a very important committee, and he was also on the Agriculture Committee, like many people from Iowa are. Okay, and I've got to ask, what measures are Democrats uh, going to enact to introduce to censure King? So there are a couple proposals on the table. Some Democrats want to censure him, which would be a pretty severe kind of punishment. But it seems like what they're going to do is is something a little bit less severe. They're going to formally reprimand him. And there's supposed to be a vote on that potentially today. Well, I guess we'll see how that vote goes. Thank you so much for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me. Up next, the interview we've been talking about all morning. Isaac is sitting down with the legendary Molly Ringwald. You aren't going to want to miss this. Don't go away. I'm thrilled to be joined by actor, singer, author, and legend, Molly Ringwald. Good morning, Molly. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You are in a wonderful movie, All These Small Moments. I want to just take a look at a quick scene here. Okay. I'm starving. Can you ask someone for bread? Who? I don't know, someone who has access to it? Excuse me, sir. Hi. Could we please get some bread? Thank you. I was handling it. It's just bread. It's fine. You say it's bread, but it's not bread. Can't it just be bread? Just this once, could it just be bread? against your character here at all, but it seems like that wasn't just about bread. No, what? I don't think it was just about bread. What's happening there? But Well, it's a marriage that's falling apart, mm -hmm. basically, and uh, uh, he, he invites, it's supposed to be sort of like a date night, but it's two people that really should not be in a date night. They should be at a therapist's office. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, it's not about bread. It's not about bread. It's also about two young teenage boys, but it, it's also just a movie that so captures these perfect three different female characters at different points in their lives. How yeah. much did you relate to those characters? I mean, I really felt like I related to all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I looked at, at Harley Quinn Smith, who plays the, uh, the teenage girl, and felt like I knew that. I'd been through that phase. Uh, and then I, you know, I've been 30 years old. I've been divorced, uh, you know, and, and now I'm the age of my character, Carla. Um, and I, I love that about the movie. I mean, Melissa, uh, the director, she, writer-director, she likes to say that it's almost like the same woman. Mm. at different times in her life. Yeah, and it I mean, that yeah. really came through. It yeah. was such a, it's such a beautiful film. So again, congratulations. Thank you. But you're also very busy. Yes, I am. Okay, uh, <laughs> a, a novel and stories, which yes. I was also a big fan of. Thank you. A memoir, and you just recently, uh, coming out later this year, you translated a French novel? I did, yeah. I translated uh, a book, um, in the, the French title was Arrête avec tes mensonges, and the English title is Lie with me and it's being released by Scribner. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I also wrote a couple of pieces for The New Yorker. Yeah. And I just finished my first screenplay that um, I'd like to direct. And uh, yeah, I got Can a few things coming out. Can you tell us what the screenplay is about? Not yet, okay, not yet. I just the... finished it. Oh. I mean, like this was like a couple days ago, so I'm still sort of being a little protective. How do you choose your writing projects? Um, usually it's something, I mean, it's something that I'm dying to write, something that I've been turning over in my head a lot, like the New Yorker piece mm -hmm. that I 
the second one, the one about sort of reexamining the films that I made in the 80s, um, it was something that I'd been thinking about for a long time and trying to sort of formulate what I wanted to say about it. So um, I think that that's really, I usually just write because I really feel like I have to say something. And did that, that I mean, that essay was so powerful. It's Thank so you. beautiful. Those thoughts were kicking around in your head for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've seen the conversation around those films change? I do, I do. I feel like, uh, I mean, some people read it and said, you know, thank you, I've been waiting for somebody to write that. Some people said that it, they, it never even occurred to them. Mm. Uh, and I, I really do feel like it's, it's created an interesting conversation. But it was really important for me to, to also that people didn't think that I was denouncing the films at all. Because mm. I'm not, you mm. know, there's still so much that I love about them. And I think they're powerful and they're very connected to people's memories and youth and you know but i but i do feel like it, it was a it was a complicated nuanced conversation that i that i wanted to start and that you opened up for so many yeah. people and i think that's so important because of course it's wonderful to put an essay in the world and hear yeah. the people that are like oh yes i agree yeah but to hear the people that are like oh i never thought about it like yeah that that's incredible that yeah. you were able to open that dialogue you talked about um sitting down and and watching the breakfast club with your daughter yeah do you feel like Films, especially the one you're just in, but uh, TV shows that now are, are doing a better job of capturing the, the teenage experience? Um, I, you know, I, I think that that's one of the things that made the, the Hughes films so special was that they really were very authentic. Um, in, in my, from my point of view, the only movie that, that really comes to my mind that really, really gets it is Eighth Grade. Mm. Um, I, I feel like that's, that movie is a masterpiece and mm. it's just a masterful performance by Elsie Fisher. Mm -hmm. um, it's such a well-made film, but it's, you know, I re having a teenage daughter and being sort of around that from, from you know, instead of being in it but observing it, I just thought, like, they, he just totally got it. Yeah, I thought it was a remarkable movie. I, I love that one, absolutely. You also, you play Archie's mom uh, mm -hmm. in Riverdale. Yeah. What's it like watching those young stars blow up, become huge celebrities? Well, it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> I've, been, I've been... You've done you know, this once or twice? I've been this once or twice. I mean, it happened to me, but then I did, you know, Secret Life of the American Teenager, which Shailene Woodley was in. And, you know, I mean, I've seen... I've seen this happen before, and you know it's 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 always interesting. I I kind of watch it. I'm on the it's it's. I, I have to say I prefer watching it from the outside than being inside <laughs> it. Um, you know because I think that it's it's a little overwhelming when that sort of attention happens to you. So do you do you, do you ever feel protective or or or, or, or yeah yeah I feel like, protective. Or do, or do you do they ever come to you to talk about it? No, I'm not, <laughs> no, and I and I don't really offer unsolicited <laughs> advice. I try unless it's my you know my kids. Smart, smart, smart. Um, yeah, I find that generally I just wait if, if you know I'll totally ask you know answer questions and you know I think because I come in and out I sort of I'm not like you know I know Luke Perry who plays Archie's dad. Mm -hmm my ex-husband, um, they have a really tight relationship, like mm. father-son relationship, uh, which is really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, before we let you go, we have to talk about AOC. All right, there was that incredible, yes. her doing the dance, you and Ali Sheedy's <laughs> Breakfast Club dance, yeah. you tweeted, that's it, Alexandria, you're in the club. <laughs> yeah. Is it safe to say you're a fan? I am definitely a fan. What do you think of it, it is about her that's that's connecting so much with people? I, to me, it's just that authenticity. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like she, and she has energy. I like the fact that she is a digital, 
native. Like she, she feels comfortable expressing herself that way, but it doesn't seem like it's it's planned out, and it doesn't seem like it's uh, it's just from a um, it's it's not from a tantrumy place mm. like other people we might um, discuss. Um, <laughs> no, I feel like she's. Uh, I, I like everything about her. Do you do you feel hopeful then? Do you think there are going to be more politicians like her? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think that people are ready for that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, you know, she she has to be able to work in the establishment as well and know how far she can go because it's really important that we, I think, um, that the Democrats don't divide themselves mm -hmm. um, and sort of, you know, we need to band together mm -hmm. and there has to be some compromise. There has to be, to, to go into the system but make some change yeah. in that system, yeah. which I won't lie, reminds me of a certain other person that I know, Molly Ringwald, thank you for <laughs> all that you've done. I truly hope to hear more about this script in the future soon. Thank and you. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Listen up, All These Small Moments, it's a wonderful film and it will be in theaters January 17th and on demand on January 18th. Up next, Stephanie is speaking with Tommy Obaro about the very popular series, You. Stay tuned. Here's a tweet from Ira Madison. I'm texting with no less than five friends who are in the middle of watching the show You, and I love all the all caps texts I'm getting. Well, joining me now to talk about this stalker drama that's holding the timeline hostage is Tomi Obaro, senior culture editor at BuzzFeed News. Hey, Tomi. Hi. So an interesting thing about this show is that it originally aired on Lifetime, and not that many people, I guess, saw it or were talking about it. And then over the holidays, it was released on Netflix, and that's yes. where it kind of blew up. And that's when you discovered it too, right? Yeah, so I'd heard about it, and then finally I was like, okay, I guess I'll give it a go. And um, yeah, it's just being on Netflix, I think it's like the perfect series to watch like over the holidays. You have nothing else to do, you're bored. You watch you. Yeah, you watch you. Very good, very I good. Yes, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> so you had a really interesting take on this whole series. You wrote that it kind of expresses the hell that dating as a straight woman in 2019 mm -hmm. exemplifies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so the premise of you, for those who don't know, is just um, about this about a guy named Joe who's a bookstore manager who becomes quickly obsessed with this woman that he meets at the bookstore. And a lot of the show is sort of parsing and satirizing some of the more like unseemly aspects of dating. So like she's on app, she's on Tinder, she has a situationship with this like douchey bro. Um, and then Joe, who's the main character, is this guy who seems like a good guy, but he's actually a stalker. And there's always like the threat of violence and like explicit violence in the show, but you know, in real life, I think for women who are on dating apps and who have had to like experience those like weird nebulous relationships, you is really good at exemplifying like the, the worst aspects of those. I know. I feel like Joe is such an incredibly smart character because he's, you know, the night the nice guy yeah. who actually has a lot of darkness mm -hmm. underneath the surface. And it also it kind of pokes fun and satirizes a lot of um romantic comedy tropes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so like even in the pilot, it begins with them meeting at a bookstore. And right. that's sort of like the ultimate meet cute. Um, and you know, Joe is someone who who seems very nice and he really cares for her. Um, but the fact is, like, he's a stalker and he's, you know, he's killed a few people. He, he's not a good guy at all. Yeah. And so you is sort of, like, taking the, like, the long view of, like, that, that sort of encounter where you meet someone who seems cute and you have this witty banter, but you don't actually know them at all. 
And one of the interesting things I think is too is how it uses technology and social media and basically shows how creepy it can be, yeah. you know, how easily someone can find out stuff about you. What did you mm -hmm. think about that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I was like, all of y'all need to put passwords on your laptops. Like, there's yeah. so many things that the character of Beck does where you're just like, girl, what are you doing? Buy some curtains. Use them. I mean, she's like literally on the ground floor. Like, I, really I really am not a huge curtains person. I like having a lot of light in my house. But mm -hmm. like, if people can like literally just yeah, stand and look I'm at your like, house back, come on. You gotta, gotta cover your windows. But also, I think it really does a good job of showing how often we have two different personas. Like, there's the online persona, where Beck acts like she has everything all together. And then in real life, she's struggling to like make ends meet. She has like daddy issues and all of this stuff that she doesn't, you know, like broadcast on Instagram. The show also has kind of taken the social media aspect and I've, it's become a huge talker on Twitter. People, it's mm -hmm. like becoming a meme, you know, it's this whole thing. But also Penn Badgley, who <laughs> plays Joe, had, fans are tweeting him all the time and they seem to be like genuinely into him and he mm -hmm. keeps tweeting them back like, ladies, no, this is yeah. not a good idea. Do you think that, what What do you think of all that? I think it's pretty weird, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure like with Penn Badgley because he also has that Gossip Girl history, there are people who have been his fans from day one. So I'm sure that's a part of the appeal. But also he does an amazing job playing Joe and Joe is a very smart very funny, biting kind of character. But by the end, I was definitely not on Joe's team. So I think if you finish the series and you're still like, go Joe, then I'm, I'm kind of a side eye you a bit. Yeah, yeah, no. Do you, so now the show is coming back from season two. Do you have any ideas of things that you'd like to see them explore? Or mm -hmm. don't spoil me, because I'm only on episode two. Okay, so I will say there is a character who disappears in season one, and I would like to learn more about what their family is thinking. That was like that was a great like uh, like thing that I can look forward to, but you didn't spoil it for me. I love it. Thank I love you. it. Now I mean I don't need to go and watch the whole thing. Yeah. Alright, well Tommy, thank you so much thank for you. joining me and talking about this creepy show. More Ian CDM is up next. take care of yourself, and today we're going to look at a difficult topic, suicide prevention. Let's start with this tweet from Gabby Frost. It's totally okay to share the suicide prevention lifeline when a celebrity dies, but don't make that your only effort to prevent suicide and raise awareness for mental health. Everyone can do more to help alleviate these problems. Well, joining me now to keep that conversation going is Dr. Christine Moutier, the Chief Medical Officer for the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. Thank you so much for coming on again to talk to me. Yes. So how do you think that celebrities, either who have passed away due to suicide or who've talked about their own experiences with mental health issues, shape the narrative around mental health in this country? What we're seeing is that so many more people, including celebrities, athletes, many people who have that kind of platform and people who look up to them are sharing authentically about their health and their mental health. You know, mental health is just a part of our health. And so it is a natural next step as the stigma is going down that we would be able to talk about it in ways that help us be healthier, basically, and to support one another as well. So we're seeing that. and. Overall, a hugely positive sign. And again, that stigma is going down. So these are open topics, that um, conversations that we can have. 
So you do think it is a positive thing that celebrities are talking more about that. I agree. I think it's great. Do you think that we have to kind of pull the celebrity out of it and focus on mental health as a as an issue? Or do you think that this is okay that if this is the way people get into it, that's that's works? I think, you know, it's it's whatever somebody is listening to that might open up their mind to the possibility that there are things they could be doing differently that maybe lead to better mental health for themselves. That would be that would be the biggest goal and the biggest takeaway. I mean, I think there are some things that we all need to think about in terms of sharing about our mental health to make sure we set it up for the most positive impact. Um, so, you know, that would be the one thing that I would say that sometimes there's modeling out there that isn't necessarily the best way or the right way or for you the right way. So we have to just think about that and, and make sure we set up our own sharing and our own conversations to lead to, um, you know, feeling supported and being able to take that next step that is the right thing for you. Yeah, I want to talk about sharing a little bit because something that I see on social media all the time, which I wonder about how healthy it is, is people like to talk about their mental health and it's definitely becoming more discussed, but people are usually doing this through memes or through jokes or through, you know, like joking about their depression and their anxiety. And it's hard to parse when someone is really struggling if they're constantly joking about it. So what do you think that there, do you think there's a way to kind of look through that and help people who might be struggling but who might not have the right words to say it and might use jokes to express themselves? Definitely. We've seen that as well. And the use of memes, I think, overall is a wonderful thing because that's how people communicate about lots of different topics. So doing that about our mental health in general is fine and great. I think what you need to do is think about the people you know and love. You know their patterns of behavior. And so if something stands out to you, even about the way that they're sharing a meme or talking about their mental health, and it, it stands out to you in a way that just kind of um, sets your, your gut off to say something might be a little bit off, that's when I would say, now's the time to act and ask them if they're okay and, and not in a public way. You know, set it up in a private conversation so that you can actually have a more authentic, deep conversation to invite them to share about how they're actually doing with their anxiety or the, their depression, whatever that um, they're experiencing. Um, you can set that up, I think, best by being really clear about the fact that you're not there to judge them. You're there to support them 100% and that you want to understand more about what they're going through. Those words will invite really anyone who's ready to share to be able to say something that's a little bit more detailed or, or deep and authentic about what they're experiencing. I'm glad you said that because I think one of the things that people really struggle with is when they see someone hurting, they want to help, but they don't really know how. You know what I mean? Like you see someone who's clearly struggling with mental health issues and they want to reach out, but you don't want to poke the bear. You don't want to make them feel judged, like you said. Do you have any other advice for how to help someone who you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or mental health issues that you care about, but in a positive way? Yes. I think what the first step is to realize that just your support, just having a conversation where you can hear what they're really experiencing and not jump to a quick fix or a judging type of statement, that alone creates a sense of connection where they now don't have to bear that burden on their own. So do not underestimate the power of that sense of support for somebody who may be struggling. And if, they're, if they share that they're having suicidal thoughts, 
you know, that's a time to really think about the fact that they may need some professional help and to encourage them to do that. Tell them you think that's the right thing and the smart and strong thing to do. If you've ever seen a therapist or a psychiatrist, share that so that they know, you know, 39% of Americans actually seek mental health treatment. So this is like, you know, we should be talking about that more. Um, you know, I think there, the, the thing too is make sure you understand you're their friend. Keep checking in with them. If they had shared with you that they, whatever, had broken their leg or they were going through something at school or in a relationship, as a caring friend, you would check back in on them. That's all you need to do is keep on showing up for them um, in that moment. You don't need to be a therapist. You don't need to be a doctor. I certainly would if they're having suicidal thoughts and you're not sure if they're safe in this exact moment, I would lean on the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or the Crisis Text Line, 1-800-273-TALK, or text the word TALK to 741-741, and a trained counselor can help you support your friend in that moment. It's not just for the person who's struggling, those resources. That is such great advice, and I think one of the things that we really wanna hammer home is that it really takes just a small act to help someone. Well, Dr. Moutier, thank you so much for joining me today. And if you are ever in need of help, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, like she said. And the number to call again is 1-800-273-8255. You can also reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting REASON to 741-741. We've got more AMCDM coming up next. Welcome back. Uh, I'm super hungry for lunch. I know, right? It's like, that's what people are saying. Oh, we're making you hungry. Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. There's a lot of fast food talk on the timeline today. We asked what fast food would you serve at your dinner party? Jen says, I'm never unprepared for a dinner party because I love to cook. But if push came to shove, I'd serve up some Shake Shack. Yeah, I like that Jen's like, she owns it. She's like, just for the record. Yes. My dinner party would be great. I know. Invite us over, John. I want to go to a dinner party at John's house. And Monica said that she would serve Chipotle or Popeyes. Yeah, so I was thinking about this, you know, during the break, as I do. And I'm probably thinking about this for the rest of the week. And I was like, okay, why not even just get some catered, like, I hate to keep talking about it, but sweet green or, like, Chipotle. Or, like, you can get those big, like, catering trays. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, even that. You would be really better. got a, you got a lot of joy from the moment, but you're also very upset that it was served to these Clemson students. You're yeah, right, yeah, and why not go to a local restaurant? Let's say like that really needs some uh, press and some business. Maybe like a DC staple, and have them bring in big catering trays. Absolutely. All I'm gonna say is Chipotle or uh, Popeyes. Why not both? Jason Diamond tweeted, just want to point out that Isaac wore my old denim jacket with my old Evanston YMCA patch on it while he interviewed Molly oh Ringwald. Oh my gosh, that, that is so cool. I did notice that. I kind of saw it, but I didn't really make the connection. Nice. That's that. It's good you didn't make the connection. I actually put this jacket on this morning, and I didn't make out the connection. What? So shout out to Jason for noticing it. But yes, this is this is very Chicago suburban jean jacket. I I Jason love it. lent to me over two years ago, and I have yet to return it. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Back up. So you are borrowing clothes from people, never returning them, and then flaunting them on air? I like, mean, you don't even have any shame about the fact that you're stealing clothes from people? When you put it like <laughs> that, Stephanie, he loaned it to me. I mean, did he give it to you? I'm, I'm, uh, over time, maybe? 
Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, like you're like literally taking things out of people's closets and you are deciding to taunt them. It's even worse. He gave it to me off his back. But thank you to Jason Diamond. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is, that is some level of scamming I, I have never seen and you're not even ashamed of yourself. Well, thank you to our guests, Alex Spence, Ruby Kramer, Emma Loop, Molly Ringwald, Tommy Abaro, and Dr. Christine Moutier. Saeed and I will be back here tomorrow. We hear he is feeling healthier. See you at 10 a.m. Steph, great having you these first couple of days of the week. Thanks for having me.